So I tell folks, if somebody's out peddling, peddling you proprietary crypto, don't walk away, run. So just run out of the room. Today on TechNATO, we'll be talking with Dr. Williams from Envail about how to protect data in use. We're also going to be talking about Microsoft's very bad week, as well as how 3D mapping can help restore Notre Dame Cathedral. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNATO. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and today I am joined, as always, by Don Pazette. Don, how are you doing? Doing swell. And Don, let, just real quick, you want to take an informal vote. What do, what do you say we add this guy, like, permanently? Do I get a vote? To, to, no. Uh. To the <laughs> TechNATO podcast. Is it... I haven't read up. In the U.S., is it legal to have two redheaded people, like, on camera at the same time? I mean, we've already broken that law a couple of times. Don, that's offensive. And, uh, <laughs> if you I'm, would like to write in to Don on behalf of the Ginger community, uh, <laughs> email address will be listed in the description below. But this is Justin Dennison. And, and Justin, we've decided to, uh, to make you a permanent fixture here. What do you think about that? Uh, I, I, I'm excited. For now, I may be terrified <laughs> in the future. Or if they do pass uh, that new legislation about uh, limiting redheads mm -hmm. to on-camera presence, uh, we'll, we may have to rethink that. We we talked about changing the name of the show to uh, Don Between Two Gingers, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to go with a big no on that. <laughs> the way we're sitting, I'm going to go with a big no on that. Maybe yeah. misconstrued about what kind of podcast. Exactly. It is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've got a great show for you today. We got a lot of news to get to. We also have an interview coming up um, with Dr. Ellison Ann Williams from Invail. We're going to be talking about um, data in use encryption. Right? Is that yeah, you know, uh, keeping data encrypted through its entire life cycle, not just while it's in motion or at rest. And Don says it's impossible, but we're going to find out if that's true or not. All right, uh, let's head to the big story of the week, which is actually outside of the tech world, but um, the the fire uh, over in Paris at Notre Dame. Uh, but there's some interesting tech twist to this. This one over on SlashGear.com. Notre Dame Cathedral Fire, this 3D scan may save all. And so... I thought about this because I've seen a lot of those Microsoft commercials where they talk about um, taking images and, and scanning different locations. But this is actually from the video game Assassin's Creed Unity. Uh, they they have a lot of scenes that take place uh, in the church there, and they actually scanned the entire building, and it may help them now with uh, with repairing things back to how they were. Yeah, if you've if you've ever been to Notre Dame, uh, the the one in Paris, not the one here in the U.S. Not the one uh, on Assassin's Creed. Yeah. They have uh, wooden lattice work all throughout the interior of it, and, I mean, just tons of, of uh, just art and relics and sculptures and things that have been uh, installed over the years. Uh, it's, it's really a national treasure, the, the building. Uh, so the, the fire is just very, very tragic. Uh, but President Macron has announced that they, they are going to rebuild. They, they want to get it done within five years, so it's a quick rebuild. Uh, some of the more more well, all the really valuable relics were rescued. They were taken mm -hmm. out uh, during the fire. Uh, looks like most of the stained glass wasn't affected, so that's awesome because that I, I just assumed the glass would melt uh, and they would lose a lot of that. And that, that stuff is priceless. And the spire was actually an addition. I, I realized, like I mean, still old, but yeah, so it was added after the revolution, a couple hundred years ago, mm -hmm. as opposed to. Yeah. So, you know, they're going to have to rebuild it. And it's not like there's this one big set of blueprints for a church that was built 
600 years ago or, or whatever. I mean, it, it is a, an old, old building. So uh, Ubisoft, the the publisher and designers behind Assassin's Creed, they, they had scanned it. So they have these great renderings of exactly what it looked like. And they've, they've done two things. So one, they've, they've completely shared that to, to make it available to anybody who's going to be in that reconstruction effort. Uh, but also, they're giving away copies of Assassin's Creed Unity right now. If you install their UbiPlay loader, uh, we're not a video game news site, but it's kind of neat that they're going that extra step because they're a French company. Ubisoft is, is based out of Paris. Uh, so they're they're obviously very involved in that. Uh, and I think they donated like 500,000 euros to the, the reconstruction effort. So a uh, huge effort on their part. Um, this, so... I'm maybe I I need to to revisit my reading capabilities. It, is it that Assassin's Creed Unity was the only one that scanned it, or was there an additional scan? Because I think they're the way There's I read this. One. Uh, yeah, I well, think, no, it was like they were talking about uh, someone, a professor who did like a 3D laser scan. I think uh, from what I understand of reading through this, it sounds like he did that, and then Assassin's Creed used that, but or or funded at that, or was involved in some way because that took place. Um, Looks like back in 2016, um, but I, I think it was a, kind of a, a joint effort because it says, yeah, Professor Andrew Tallon, um, you know, captured some of those images as well. So I, it it might be that they hired him because obviously, you know, Ubisoft didn't send, you know, the game developers out there. Hey, go, go take some <laughs> pictures of the church and see what's up. But, this yeah. makes me feel bad because uh, we, we toured Europe right after high school. And I thought we were meeting back to go through Nader Dame in a lead tour. And when we met back, we met back like 10 minutes early, and they're like, all right, we're getting ready to leave. I was like, Did we oh, we that? were supposed to, I thought we were touring. No, they're like, no, you're supposed to walk through it yourself. Uh, so I like sprinted through Notre Dame, so I got to see pieces of it. But uh, at now, least you got in there. Yeah, yeah. I, I got in my, there. My daughter and I were, uh, were over there uh, over uh, New Year's break, and we spent so much time in line for the Eiffel Tower that we had to get back to our train. And so I <laughs> told the cab driver, can you just drive us by Notre Dame? We're going to take some pictures. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been through it as a kid, but it, but at least she got to see it. And, and you know, it, it's coming back. So, so that's good news. But uh, it's kind of cool to see the role that the tech is playing in all that. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move over now to techradar.com. Um, this is new Microsoft Surface Hub 2S finally replaces original model. Now, I remember back when they showed, I can't remember which conference it was. I don't think it was Ignite, but um, they showed kind of the demo of this and how you can hold meetings and, and really get everyone involved. And, and that was really cool. But uh, I'm not sure what, what's coming out with the, with the new one here. So the the thing with the Surface Hub, right? So they, they announced it years and years ago, uh, and it's really, I mean, it's really just a giant Microsoft uh, Surface tablet, right? But it's so giant that it can replace a whiteboard. And when they announced it originally, so I, I feel like it was five years ago uh, when they announced it. I don't remember the exact year, uh, but the, there was a smaller version, which was. I believe $9,000. And then there was the large version that was like $15,000. These were not cheap, but they were designed to be fully touch-capable whiteboard replacements. So people were thinking, hey, in the classroom, this would be really handy. In a, a boardroom for a company, this would be really handy. That You can get up and do everything that you'd expect on a full touch-enabled device. Uh, so this year... They've announced new ones, and it's been a while, so it's kind of been uh, been in the works. Uh, they haven't announced a smaller and a larger one, just like before. The smaller one is now 50 inches, and the larger one is 85 inches, which wow. is massive. Uh, they are both 4K plus screens, so they're you know very high resolution. That means you can get really detailed imagery on them. The pricing, uh, I don't believe they've announced pricing on the larger model, but on the smaller model, it is a cool $8,999, so still, still not cheap. 
And, and that's unusual to me. Like you can buy those, uh, the TVs that have Roku embedded in them or a smart TV or, or whatever. And you get them for $200 at, at Best Buy for a, like a 43 inch model. So here's a 50 inch television effectively, uh, that has some smart components inside of it. And it's $9,000. So I, I feel like if this were priced a little more reasonably, we'd see these in every classroom. Right, because there's usually a TV in a classroom anyway, so why not just pop this in here and you get dual use out of it? Uh, but the pricing is so far off on these, I just don't know how successful. I, it is. I'm sorry, Don. They've they've got the eight beam uh, forming microphones, dual speakers, dedicated subwoofer, uh, a camera oh, so all that comes along with it, and a pen. All right. So, so when you started reading those specs, I was like, in your car? Are they selling car <laughs> stereos now? Uh, but if you read further down, the specs. I mean, they're, they're not, like, mind-blowing. 8 gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabyte SSD, quad-core processor, integrated graphics. Now, as being a, a former classroom teacher, we had, you know, these, these smart boards, mm -hmm. uh, these, these interactive whiteboards. Some of them worked well. Some of them did not. I'm pretty sure none of them were $9,000. How <laughs> many of them had eight magnetic mounting points for the pen? Um do I need eight? I don't know. But you only have eight. the one pen. Yeah. Well, even if you had eight, how much does that cost, right? <laughs> now, Peter, you used to work at a marketing company, and yeah. didn't you guys have one of these? We, no, well, we had a Microsoft Surface, the, the table. Oh, the table. Oh, and so, that's right. Yeah, you, you got to remember that Microsoft Surface is something they called something else <laughs> long before <laughs> this. And then they're like, hey, we're not going to make this anymore, but we really like that name. So we're going to use that for the computer now. We had one of the, the first-gen uh, tables that actually it, it ran Vista. And um, it, and it was great. You know, you could we were able to do some things with it where uh, you had the sensors with the um, not the QR codes, but it almost looked like dice on the bottom where it, uh, you could put things down. And it would recognize what it is, uh, and it was all great until um, someone sat on it. <laughs> and that's a true story. Uh, <laughs> cracks the screen. But uh, Microsoft paid for that one because they were a, a customer. But it, it was twenty five grand. So they have they have palm detection, so you can write with a pen stylus, but they don't have cheek detection apparently. Oh, that'll, that'll get you. <laughs> and everybody denied it was them too. That was a, that was a fun one. So, but as you know, as a, I think a takeaway, right at the very end of this article, it says one of the nicest little whiteboards I've ever used. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I would hope so. I would sure yeah. hope so for nine grand. Even after you rattled off all those specs, like I, I just don't, I don't see the value. Yeah. I, I, it, it seems like this should be three thousand dollars. I'd have to see it in use, so. but but I do like that they've changed the form factor now to be vertical because you can't sit on it anymore. It's <laughs> it's sit proof. That so. sounds like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Challenge oh accepted. yeah. You don't think I can? All right. Watch. <laughs> we shall. Well, you don't see. want that small trampoline. Uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, so last week uh, we talked about this awesome new chip from Intel. And today on Tom'sHardware.com, we have Intel Demos, its first 400 uh, gigabyte E silicon photonics transceiver words, words, Good job. outlines, <laughs> design. I said it better myself. <laughs> what did I say wrong? The, the 400 gigabyte E, that's not right. So I, I want to point out the the date on this article because, you know, we were filming that that podcast episode and we had this announcement for the 100 gigabit Ethernet adapters, which were, were going to market. So you can buy those, right? Uh, I found this article that very evening after the podcast. <laughs> I was like, great, well, we just did the 100 gig. Um, these are a little more cutting edge, right? So it's not an adapter you can drop in your system. It's the transceiver they've designed. So we'll see these actually come to market in about a year. But 400 gigabit Ethernet, that's kind of the next step. So Intel uh, did a full demo to actually show that these things do work. And they'll 
spend some time retooling them, getting their production lines up and getting it available for the rest of us to purchase. Uh, right now, like I've got the little diagram here on my laptop where they're showing like you've got one transceiver over here and a nice little set of fiber cabling mess to the other side, uh, which is actually serving as that adapter. And that connection, they're able to push 400 gigabit of Ethernet traffic over it. So that just shows where our future is headed. Uh, it's really impressive. This will be, like I said last week, this will be rolled out usually in like trunks first, in between switches, uplinks. Uh, you'll see that in data centers, storage networks, and it'll slowly trickle down to where it hits everything else. It is fiber-based. I don't believe they've even taken a look at copper on this one yet. Uh, so expect this one to be uh, a few years out before we see anything in our small businesses or homes. And I, immediately I, AT&T came in and throttled their connection down <laughs> uh, right when I they think, saw this. I think all major telecom providers actually <laughs> yeah. did that. Um, I, I read in the article, it, it seems like copper is hitting some fundamental limits physically uh, for transmit speeds. But something that, that caught my eye, we're moving toward 1.6 terabit links. Like that's the, the kind of the move through the go. I was like, that's fast. How many... Blu-ray DVDs could I watch at the same time, <laughs> the same time. on my mind $9,000 service. Well, I mean, the, the way they keep going, the, the, the 4K TVs and stuff came out, right? Yeah. And pushing 4K video is, is hard. Uh, and now they're doing all the 8K stuff is, is announced already. What's that, next? I, 16K? That actually was announced, I think. <laughs> in, in some that, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 32K, just pen yeah, right just now. Skip it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to 6G, too, on my uh, phone. Uh, do some weird, like 47K or something, where it's not a power. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. guaranteed to just work. breaking. Mind yeah. blown. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, always neat to see exciting boundaries being pushed, and you know, 400 gigs where we're at right now. All right. We're going to head over now to the Ubuntu wiki, wiki.ubuntu.com. Uh, and we've got release notes on Ubuntu 19.04. And, uh, ooh, I, I love this code name. Or is, I don't know if it's code name or official name, but Disco Dingo. That's right. That's yep. fantastic. So it is April, and every April and October, we expect our new releases of Ubuntu. They're on a six-month release cadence. And so, just like every other April, we get our 19.04. Now, this is a off year, so this is not a long-term service release. This is a, a short term, which means if you're a business or you're an enterprise, you don't necessarily want to go installing 19.04. 18.04 is the current long-term support. 19.04 is going to be supported for six months, and then when 19.10 comes out, That'll be the new one that's supported until 20.4 comes out. That'll be the next long-term support one. Uh, so this is out. Uh, Disco Dingo is the code word, but they they keep the code names for the life of the application or the the OS. They kind of proud yeah, of. Yeah, some of those so, code names are fun. Uh, Disco Dingo. I don't know. For some yeah. reason, my cartoon brain goes, yeah, that's pretty wild dogs in a in a club. Just <laughs> well, like, you know, we had Bionic Beaver last year, and that one was a big hit. So, <laughs> so something interesting in the wiki ain't. Because I thought it was six month release, right? From four to ten, uh, they said that it will actually be supported till January, twenty uh, twenty, for nine months. I mean, it's not a big deal, hmm. right? It's not a huge difference. But yeah, going a little bit further. Yeah, I'm, I wonder if that's something they're just trying to overlap I, those. I guess it gives you two months to do yeah. the upgrade. Yeah. Uh, as far as new features are concerned, if you're wondering what's out there, uh, this will be the first version of Ubuntu to feature a five Linux kernel. But like we covered in previous episodes, that doesn't really matter. 5.0 is just a number. There's not a significant change in the Linux kernel on that one. Uh, in my opinion, the 
biggest change that, that's going to affect the most people is that if you're running Ubuntu on a desktop and you have like a high DPI monitor, that the new version of GNOME that's packaged with 19.04 has fractional DPI scaling. So before you could do your scaling 1x, 2x, 3x. Now you can do like 1.25x, which I know on my laptop works out great. Uh, so you have a little bit more control over your DPI scaling. That's really a function of newer versions of GNOME but it's packaged with Ubuntu 19.04. So I think that's probably the biggest change that's going to affect the most people. Uh, otherwise, it's just a suite of software updates, tool chain updates, other things uh, that you'll spot in there. But nothing, nothing should be groundbreaking or earth-shattering uh, as far as you know, application compatibility. I'm loving over here, too. I, I I'm, uh, stayed on the Ubuntu wiki, and I'm over on the development code names. Uh, and yeah, there, there's a, there's a whole conversation about what the next one should be, and it's all alliteration. So Disco mm -hmm. Dingo and and you know they've got yak, the Yakety Yak, uh, Wily Werewolf, and all, all the great ideas that are coming out. So if <laughs> if you're bored, uh, head over to Development Code Names uh, on the Ubuntu Wiki and have some fun. Yeah, something that was that caught my eye that was funny is they say there's a new version of OpenStack that is also part of this release uh, that you can install. But then right below the changelog release, like the release notes, it goes, warning, upgrading an OpenStack deployment is a non-trivial process. <laughs> so effectively, <laughs> be very careful. Uh, and as someone who's tried to install and upgrade OpenStack, they're not wrong. So definitely take care there. Yeah, that, that's been a big challenge. And we've actually seen a few vendors that have started to release bare metal installs for OpenStack so that you can just dump it right on and, and you're packaged with the OS. Uh, I think that's probably the way you're going to see that in the future. And, and we're also seeing that with Kubernetes, like just bare metal Kubernetes installs. Uh, it's just getting to be too hard to maintain. All right, fantastic. That's why Justin's here. To talk <laughs> about those things with Don <laughs> that I'm not able to help with. So thank you. No. For joining us, uh, well, you know, man, one as of someone the gingers got to carry the weight. Installing that stuff is hard, right? <laughs> you, uh, you, you it could, feels like you're making fun of me, yeah. but if you'd ever tried to do it, you'd know what I was <laughs> you're telling me, <laughs> right, guys? Uh, right. Two and a half days later, you're like, ah, oh, it still doesn't work. Look at that. We should do something else. All right, let's move over now to uh, Uh We've got open SSH 8.0 released addresses SCP vulnerability and new SSH additions. Um, yeah, so I'm going to uh, go ahead and lean on Justin again on this one to, to talk with Don about uh, those words that I just said. Yeah, you know, uh, OpenSSH is included in just about every distro that's out there because SSH is kind of the default management protocol. Uh, and it is it's actually developed by the, BS, the OpenBSD group and then the various Linux distros pull it in. Uh, 8.0 is, is another one where it's kind of like Linux kernel 5 where it's not actually that major of a change. But there's a few big things, and the, the one I wanted to point out, the reason this is, is kind of newsworthy, uh, is they patched an exploit in the secure copy protocol, SCP. And I've never cared for SCP. It's always been kind of an annoying protocol to me. Uh, the fact that it's got a security exploit in it is, is uh, I don't know, just kind of like I, icing I, on the cake. I, I think that means it's ironic, right? Secure is copy that, protocol, and then it has a yeah, security has, exploit in it. I don't is yeah. that irony? Alanis Maybe we should defer to Peter on that. No, we've got to defer to Alanis Morissette, but uh, I think oh. uh, that's more ironic than anything in that song. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you're, you're probably so. right. So, uh, you know, Theo Durant, the head of the OpenBSD project, he came out and said, look, you just need to stop using SCP and switch to other things like SFTP, which is what I generally try to do. 
But I will tell you, there are a number of systems out there like Cisco routers and switches that rely on SCP for doing secure firmware updates. Like that is their recommended protocol. So if you're using those, be sure to check your various device vendors for firmware updates that include this. If they don't, you need to reach out to them and encourage them to do that. Sorry, can you hit me with that name one more time? Which one? Theo Durrett? Uh, okay. am, I, am I pronouncing it no, wrong? No, no. Uh, I heard Durrett, and I, I was I just saw like Ratatouille in my head. Yeah, <laughs> D-E-R-A-A-D-T. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and I'll go on record as saying uh, I thought that when he said, uh, you know, stop using SCP, that's probably the nicest thing I've ever heard him say because the guy's a total jerk. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> So the image in my head is right then. <laughs> I, I don't particularly know him, but, you know, I'll stop using SCP because every time I, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just this command, and it says file not found, and then spend the next 20 minutes looking up the actual syntax for copying a single file over, and then somehow things go horribly awry. It's one of those things where if someone said, we're going to harm your family unless you can type an SCP SCP (laughs) command flawlessly right now, I would just say, well, it's been nice. I love you. Tell them I said bye. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's been real nice. Make it quick. Get another family. Well, (laughs) Well, I'm going to stop using SCP, too, uh, today. uh, I'm going cold turkey. That's for Lent. (laughs) Just for Lent. So I got uh, two more days. All right. uh, We're going to move over now. Oh, we've got a birthday to celebrate. Uh, It's the 15th birthday for CentOS. And I don't know if we have the rights to, to sing Happy Birthday. Uh, I think it's open. It's public domain. Yeah, yeah. Public yeah, domain. I think it transitioned to well, public domain now. Well, let's go ahead and skip it until we're sure. All yeah. right. Um, but maybe we'll, we'll have to do that next week. Well, instead, maybe we could just like rip off Al Roker and ask CentOS how many years young it is. Oh, yeah. I like and, that. <laughs> so, Who was yeah. the guy, Willard Scott, before that? Was that the... Oh, that's right. I think yeah, he, was, he was the original Maybe one. it's not Al Roker at all. Well, I think he he's picked up the, ah. the torch. Gotta carry it <laughs> forward. Wow, we got really out of here. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, there, didn't we? Uh, All right. Well, the CentOS project is 15 years old. 15 years ago, a group of Linux enthusiasts decided to try and compile the Red Hat source code to be able to create a free community enterprise operating system that was CentOS. Uh, at the time, they didn't know if it would be successful. Within a matter of a few years, it was picked up. And now, here we are 15 years later, and not only is it wildly successful, one of one of the more commonly installed Linux server distros. Uh, it's also got the actual support of Red Hat behind it. Many of the project leads in the CentOS project are Red Hat employees. So it's uh, it's got their blessing. It's been continuing on. Uh, organizations like Amazon Web Services or AWS, they use CentOS as the foundation for their Linux AMI that they use, you know, as, as the, their own proprietary distro of Linux. So it's it's been pretty well accepted and mature, so congratulations to them for making it 15 years, and I have no doubt it will continue on. Uh, They're ramping up for the 8.0 release, which of course hinges on Red Hat releasing their 8.0. They've got it in beta right now. Uh, Hopefully that'll happen by the end of the year. If not, that'll be an early 2020 release. Now, I went here and I I watched the interview for uh, Greg Kurtzer, uh, who who helped started that. Um, Actually, some pretty interesting information in those two small little video segments there. Uh, which is funny because I say CentOS as well. I think we all do to some extent. He actually calls out, he said, I hate that name. I hate saying CentOS. He was like, it's free. It doesn't cost a cent. And I was like, I've never thought of it that way. Hmm. Um, but hmm. it's an interesting little tidbit. He was like, CentOS, good. CentOS, bad. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of, because I think originally it was called like Chaos, Chaos Linux or something like that. And, and then it, it kind of moves through. But if you want a little more background, you know, celebrate yeah. the birthday. 
uh, definitely go take a look at those. And you mentioned the videos. You said there were two. Like, there might have been two when you looked, but they have been adding more and more and more. Uh, and, and they're going to keep going. They said for the next uh, week or two, they're adding interviews with a lot of people that were involved in the project in the early days. And they're sharing information, not just about the old stuff, but the new stuff that's coming down the line. Uh, so there's there's great interviews of people that you wouldn't normally hear from. So definitely check it out. Uh, that is on blog.centos.org. You can go and uh, read all about it. And speaking of birthdays, Willard Scott, 85 years young right now, um, <laughs> born back in 1934. So happy birthday, Willard. Um, do you know, by the way, he, he was the original Ronald McDonald? No. And Bozo the Clown? No. Uh, Wikipedia does not lie. All right. Let's shift gears now. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's to, on the internet. It it's on true. the internet. I, I just wrote it. Uh, Tom'sHardware.com. Poorly designed WPA3 Wi-Fi standard leads to multiple dragon blood flaws, and I assume this was in honor of the Game of Thrones premiere last week. Uh, so uh, you're asking probably the wrong two people. What, what, yeah, are, what are dragon yeah. blood flaws? So uh, <laughs> that's in quotes in the article. So somebody said that. Uh, no, so the the name dragon blood, and, and now you, you put me on the spot to remember the history. I think it's in here somewhere. Uh, it's a reference. It's just kind of a play on words to the exploit. This is all based on. Uh, did you find it? Uh, yeah, it's uh, affecting the Dragonfly handshake protocol. There we go. Uh, which I think is a play off like heart bleed and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're bleeding out, those type yeah. things. So, see. probably two months ago, we covered on the podcast this new security flaw that was developed. And it wasn't in the scope of, of WPA3, it was in the scope of other things, right? Uh, and what's happened is WPA3 was announced because WPA2 had a. a a fairly well-publicized vulnerability last year, and everybody's been scrambling to kind of create that new protocol so we can have secure wireless again. And that was the, the crack? Uh, yes. Okay. Yep. And so now... <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> that was, those were some good headlines. Yeah. So, uh, so WPA3 was rushed to get to market, and everybody was saying, anytime you rush a security standard, you're going to have problems and you're going to regret it. But nothing came up. Until now. And so security researchers have found where they can take the Dragonfly exploits that they had already found in other areas and they port over rather well to WPA3 and allow it to compromise the, the functionality of it. And they're saying that it's bad enough that the, the standard is effectively broken, that WPA3 as wow. it stands right now is just not viable. Well, fortunately, uh, I don't know that any of our hardware out there even supports WPA3 yet. So I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen here. Either they're going to have to revise it and release like a WPA 3.1, kind of like USB 1.1, where nobody has a USB 1.0 port. Everybody has a 1.1 or you know, usually a 3 or whatever. Uh, so I'm curious if that'll happen with WPA 3 or if they just say screw it and move right on over to WPA 4 or if they pull a Microsoft and just go to WPA 5 because, you know, why not? Well, both of those things, they have to rush again, and that's kind of the crux of the issue, right? We need to rush to get this out. Oh, yeah, our bad. Whoops. It does say in the article not many devices had implemented this, uh, so they weren't real concerned. But there were two types of attacks that they used um, to both downgrade attacks and side-channel attacks. They said it cost them $125 on Amazon hmm. to uh, gain access to this. Yeah, so brute I was force. Like, all huh. eight possible uh, eight-character lowercase passwords took 40 handshakes, $125 worth of Amazon EC2. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, it highlights that if you use a stronger password, you're still vulnerable, but it will make it far less practical to do this kind of attack. So, you, you know, you've got kind of a workaround, but it would be nice if we didn't have that exploit at all. And these are the same researchers that, that found the, the crack vulnerabilities. So they really, 
Yeah, I'm starting to irritate these guys over. <laughs> it's like they're poker the bear. Like, ah, look what we did. Oh, we got them. Yeah. We got them. In their defense, they're saying, "Look, we told you guys about this. Yeah. You ever think of doing something about it?" <laughs> apparently, they didn't. Yeah. Why are those guys calling again? Oh no. Uh, all right, let's head over now to ZDNet. Uh, some enterprise VPN apps store authentication uh, session cookies insecurely. Uh, VPN apps from Cisco, F5, Palo Alto, uh, Pulse Secure uh, were all found vulnerable, and those are those are big names, so not the yes. little guys that you might suspect. Yeah, and uh, this headline we, we pulled the one from ZDNet because uh, they're you know pretty decent site to go to, but I I could have pulled this headline from twenty other news outlets. So this was all over the place. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has released an announcement on this. Cisco Talos Labs has released an announcement. Uh, basically, the problem is a lot of the VPN clients from like very well trusted and and secure companies, what they're doing is they're storing the authentication token for their their tunnel right there locally on the machine, and they're doing it unencrypted, right? VPNs focus on protecting data in transit. They do a great job of it. They don't do anything for data at rest, and they're storing their token at rest unencrypted. And of course, the operating systems don't do anything with it because this software is not part of the operating system. It's being bolted on afterwards. And what that means is if an attacker has access to your system, right? So there's problem number one. If the attacker has access to your system, they could get a copy of that that token, that access token, and then take it to their own machine that they control separately somewhere else and establish a tunnel connection to your VPN, uh, to your home office or wherever it is you're VPNing into, and resume your session outside of your control. You could shut your machine down and they're holding the tunnel open and now they can start browsing that secure network. This is really risky for people who use VPNs on other people's hardware, like those, uh, you know, the hotel business machines they usually have down in the lobby. Uh, they usually have a Cisco VPN client or whatever installed in there so you can leverage it. You're a fool if you use it, but people do all the time. And that token could be stored there. Someone else on the computer could retrieve it. Uh, obviously, you know, it's not like somebody can remotely take advantage of this unless they're piggybacking off of some other exploit. But we see that happening so commonly, this becomes a real problem. So many of the vendors, uh, especially like Cisco, are pushing out updates right now to make sure that their local storage is encrypted as well. So now that the tokens will be secured. But if you are responsible for supporting a network where you're using uh, any of the like Cisco AnyConnect clients or uh, F5 or any of those, you need to make sure that you look for that update and get those rolled out as soon as you can. It is a vulnerability and definitely something you want to protect from. All right. I mean, I was I was actually kind of uh, taken aback because uh, for graduate school and some other things, we had to use Cisco AnyConnect to maintain connection to like our lab data and stuff. And I was like, wow, this actually affects, like you said, I figured it was going to be small things. Mm -hmm. But then, oh, these are big players, and this affects a lot of people. Yeah, and, and the risk to the individual machine isn't that great. Like, who cares if they get my laptop? But when they take over that tunnel... I'm connecting into something that to me is important enough that needs encryption. So that's giving them access to something that's important enough to need encryption. That That's a pretty big deal. Very dangerous. Uh, <laughs> 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 all right. Uh, staying on ZDNet now, but switching gears over to Microsoft, who didn't have the best week. Uh, Internet Explorer Zero Day lets hackers steal files from Windows PCs. Microsoft refused to patch issues, so security researcher released exploit code online. That just seems to always be the case, that 
that the big guys go, eh, it's not a big deal. And then, well, well I, I, maybe they recognize it. You're still using Internet Explorer? Shame on you. Maybe <laughs> yeah, that was you their deserve everything there. you get. Well, you know, l- l- let's build on this a bit, though, because there, there was another headline that was a little more sensationalized, so I didn't grab it, where uh, they said, uh, you know, uh, the zero day allows somebody to steal your files with Internet Explorer even if you haven't used it. Yep. Right now, what's going on here behind the scenes, and I kind of agree with Microsoft on this one, is that this is a vulnerability in MHT files. Now, MHT files, if you haven't heard of them, don't feel bad. The last time I used an MHT file was, it might not have even been 2000 at that point. So, I mean, this is uh, two decades ago, where if you had a website, right, it's all HTML files. Well, they came up with a format to do compiled HTML files. So, you could have a website available offline. Uh, think of like a, an Adobe PDF or uh, you know a help document. Like help documents just use that CHM format. Uh, well, that's what MHTs were for offline copies of web pages, and nobody does that anymore. Every browser supports storing web pages in the original format or at least in HTML, and that's what people do. So that's where this problem comes in, though, is that on Windows. The default application registered to open an MHT file is Internet Explorer. So even if you've never launched it, if you use Google Chrome or Firefox or whatever, and somebody sends you an email with an MHT attached, and you double-click on that MHT, it's going to launch inside of Internet Explorer, and now you get compromised. Now, a couple of problems here. First off, you've got to, you know, somebody's got to get you that MHT. So somebody you don't trust has to send you an MHT. And then second, you've got to open it. So this goes straight back to end-user security. So, you know, it's just like educating people, don't open stupid attachments. If you don't recognize what that is, then this is not a problem for you. So it, it's not that critical. And I think that's Microsoft's angle with saying we're not going to fix that. Um, on the flip side, though, I would think, you know, I, I try to think of my parents or somebody who's maybe not as technically savvy. Uh, I remember saving MH, MHT files. used to run on dial-up, so I would, like, archive all these pages uh, back in the day, and I would read them. And, well, there were a bunch of MHT files there. My parents may be familiar with the MHT file, and they're like, oh, it's perfectly fine. It's not going to cause anything. But this, he actually shows that you could use, a, I think it's an XML external entity expansion, and boom, you just start, like, reading stuff and, like, downloading things. And I would see, again, end-user security, mm-hmm. but it's not typically something I associate with executable code, per se, uh, so I think that's probably the biggest danger that I would be concerned of. Yeah, you know, MHTs were created back when web pages were all static. And maybe had some blinking text, right? But otherwise, they were static. So the idea of all this execution, all this stuff that runs in our browser today wasn't there. So it's not secure by design. I think Microsoft's recommendation here is just not to run MHT. So if you're worried about this uh, and you support it in like an enterprise network, I encourage you to push out like a group policy object that just unbinds the MHT extension from Internet Explorer. You can bind it to anything else, really. Uh, It won't be a problem. And what's interesting is it it talks a little bit in this article, I don't know about some of the other sensationalized articles, that they they actually used it to bypass some of the things that typically require user interaction, like printing files or gaining access to print screens by just using, oh, I'm going to expand this, open this up in a new tab, and now open this MHT file, and all this other stuff happens. Um, so that's one of those things where it, it makes me scared because it wasn't normally executable. People were, oh, yeah, he just sent me an MHT file. I, I'm not going to open them because I haven't seen them in years. Yeah. But they're still around apparently, and, uh, well, that's still going to be a problem if you're running in an Explorer. 
Yeah, and I always use Justin's parents as an example too. Um, yep. When I'm thinking of, he does. I've seen it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's usually at like meetings and stuff. You should call them. Yeah, I should <laughs> call I them should. more. Uh, all right, on Tom's hardware, another article about Microsoft. Microsoft confirms hackers could read Outlook, MSN, and Hotmail emails. Now, this this has nothing to do with that whole thing I saw about tiles and things on. No, this is different. Okay, yep. so so what's this all about? <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> I'm saying it's a bad week for Microsoft. <laughs> we have to figure out which we one don't even up. have that article. All right, so what happened here is that a uh, I was kind of shocked by this because what they're saying is that hackers were able to gain access to the user credentials for a support team member that was a part of Microsoft's Outlook.com staff, right? So somebody who's responsible for providing tech support. They have credentials that gives them elevated access to the system, and hackers got their username and password. Now, the shocking part of this is, is kind of twofold. So on, on one hand, that a support professional somehow got fished, you know, they, they gave out their credentials somehow. And secondly, that support professionals exist for Outlook.com, because I don't know how you'd even contact somebody like that. I just assume they didn't have support professionals. Like, there's no phone number you call for help with their Hotmail. So, but apparently they do exist. And so once the hackers had that that username and password to be able to log in, they were just able to log in uh, and start to to browse around the system. Now, the way Microsoft provides access to their support team is their tech support team members can actually open anyone's mailbox because that's what they would do as a part of running support. But they do limit it. They throttle back their access a little bit in that they're able to see who the email was from, who the email was to. They can see the subject line, but they cannot see the message body or the attachments. So for a period of time, which I believe was almost two months, if I remember right, uh, somewhere in the article has January 1st to March 28th. Oh, shoot. That's like a solid three months right there. So for about three months, attackers were able to log in and pull up really anybody's mailbox and be able to see who emails were from, who they were to, and see the subject line. And for some people, the subject line has all the relevant information of that email. So it's not as bad as it could have been, but it's still pretty bad. Yeah, and I was able to confirm that while Hotmail was affected, uh, CompuServe, Prodigy, and AOL uh, are all fine. Whew, good thing, because <laughs> I was about to go change up my passwords. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, but, but luckily, um, I never put a subject line. So it wouldn't have affected any nice. of my emails anyway. So I'm just like, it just says subject, none. See, I was doing the right thing this whole time. And you always use read receipts, too. I, I do, oh, I, I do. hate that. Yeah. I did see some forum comments on this where they were saying, oh, no, Hotmail and Outlook.com got breached. Now the attackers have access to all of my spam from my throwaway <laughs> sign-up account. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. All right, I've been looking forward to this, this next article here uh, all day uh, over on TechRepublic.com. Half of security pros would rather walk barefoot in a public restroom than use public Wi-Fi. Well, there's two guys in this room, so uh, <laughs> which which one of you uh, is, is going barefoot? I'm going to tell you a secret. They must have not have been in the public restrooms I've been in before. Because <laughs> I would much rather yeah. use a from? Starbucks or Let's a McDonald's see. Wi-Fi, uh, maybe responsibly, than go... Yeah, let's go ahead and take your shoes and socks off. Yeah, where's Walk Tech Republic's them. office? <laughs> you know, I, somewhere clean. I get what they were going for here, right? The public Wi-Fi is very dangerous, and so half the security researchers they interviewed would rather do something super gross and damaging to their own body instead of using these Wi-Fi networks. Uh, but personally, I think a better headline for this would be half of security pros don't know how to secure their own connection. Well, no one's clicking <laughs> on that. I, I know that that, but it's truer. Well, it's, it's isn't, so th that's the case, though, right? I mean, it's an issue of 
of what you do. You know, if, if you just go on a, uh, a public Wi-Fi and, and open up your banking and, and do that kind of stuff, you're, you're more at risk. So it's funny that you say that. Every time I log on to Starbucks, I have a little script that runs in the background that opens all of my banking and credit card accounts so I can quickly peruse what credit and money I have available to <laughs> Opens me. your hotmail. Yeah. Well, you know, even aside from that, though, like, let's just say uh, you, you take somebody that, that it is a little security aware or, you know, you're like me. I, I'm not a security professional, but I, I certainly understand the risks that I take with my laptop. If I were to connect to Airport Wireless right now and not do anything, don't, don't touch the keyboard, don't launch any Windows – there's stuff going on in the background on your computer that you don't even think about. Like your system starts checking in for Windows updates, right? Well, if an attacker has brought up a fake Windows update server, if they're overriding DNS, you know, if you're connected to a, an evil twin wireless network where it's not who you think it is. By Michael uh, Cohen. And I'm then, you know, at that point, <laughs> yeah, nice. you're all the way down to just relying on the certificates, Right. And there have been some really sophisticated attacks there where the certificates can be forged or malicious ones can be issued. And your laptop could end up being compromised just by being turned on and connecting wow. to that network before you even do anything. And that's where it's really useful to have uh, uh, where some VPN clients actually have where they can lock down all networking until the VPN tunnel is up. Uh, and that way your computer is just not allowed to talk at all until the client fires up, creates this VPN connection, and then you're starting to allow it to talk. Uh, I, I've noticed this problem a number of times over the years, like my iPad. I would go on, a, on an airplane, and I'd be in airplane mode, and then I would uh, get on the GoGo in-flight internet, Oh. and I would burn through my bandwidth in two minutes. I'm like, what the heck happened? And uh. It was the iPad trying to do all its updates. It wouldn't do the updates when it was on cellular, but then the moment you get on Wi-Fi, it assumes you have all the bandwidth in the world and starts doing all these crazy things. So that's the real risk with these networks is your computer's reaching out whether you want it to or not. And Mac OS, Linux, they all do it. Uh, so that that's uh, how we start to expose ourselves to compromises like these. Oh, that's disappointing. I was hoping that you guys were both going to volunteer to take your shoes off and walk in the public <laughs> Abs restrooms. Absolutely not. I mean, no, not I, happening. I walk around barefooted sometimes, but in public restrooms, well, it's definitely not one of those places. I'll tell you, I, I did the global entry program, uh, you know, so that when I'm going through the airport, you know, going through TSA, the security lines, I, I don't like to take my shoes off just there yeah. at the security line. <laughs> yeah, that always kills me, the people walking through security with, with flip-flops, and then they, they just take those off. Like, we're just yeah. barefoot out here? They're like, oh, the, I win. It's so TSA. easy to take them off. You're not inconveniencing me. No, and I'm like, lose. well, bacteria. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then you're bringing, that on, you're bringing that on my plane? Yeah, I mean, uh, the grand scheme of things. Oh, yeah. I don't know if foot bacteria and fungus and is what I'm concerned about in a closed space. And then the people that take their shoes off on the plane and get up and go to the restroom. Ah, now that's a that's a big no even with for, socks. That's I mean, that's a, that's a big no. You just tied two sponges to your feet. And went, that's <laughs> worse than barefoot. <laughs> All um, right, I have no segue uh, now <laughs> for that because I wasn't expecting to talk about that. Uh, yeah. But uh, we have a great interview uh, that we're going to do now. Uh, all the way from Maryland, we're going to be joined by Dr. Ellison Ann Williams, and she is with Envale. And uh, and Don, we were talking about this a little bit ahead of time, but but just. Quick, what what, are, what is the what does Envil do that, that as far as you know? So they do a special type of encryption that's not what we're used to, right? We're used to encryption for data at rest, right? You know, you, you might use like GPG or, or other like VeraCrypt, BitLocker, whatever to encrypt your data on your hard drive. We use encryption in transit, so SSL, TLS, VPNs to encrypt data as it moves between our systems. But what they do is encryption of data in use, like when you open a document, that document is in RAM. 
it's unencrypted, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see it. They've got a way that you can actually work with data while it's still encrypted. So it's stored encrypted. You open it and work with it encrypted. You transmit it encrypted. It never gets decrypted. And if that sounds impossible to you, it sounds impossible to me too. So we're going to ask her about that and find out how that works uh, coming up in our interview. Yep, let's get her on the line. Uh, and that's coming up right after this here on TechNATO. Stay tuned. My name is Dana Morrison. I'm the IT director at Grace Christian School in Raleigh, North Carolina. IT directors often hoard so much knowledge that it's hard for their team members to learn. IT Pro TV has given us the ability to level up our technicians to a point where they can decide this is important for me to learn. I would recommend IT Pro TV uh, to any IT team. It's just a great tool uh, for any IT professional. Welcome back to TechNATO, and as promised, we are now joined uh, all the way from Maryland by Dr. Ellison Ann Williams uh, of Invale. And uh, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So, uh, you know, we're, we're just kind of discussing off the air, so let's, uh, let's clarify this. Uh, the, the doctorate is in algebraic... What, what Combinatoric. <laughs> what, what Justin said there. So what, what the heck is that? Let's start there. What does that mean? It's, it's basically the study of pattern. So that makes a lot of sense for uh, what Invail does. So why don't you tell uh, the folks that are watching that are not familiar with Invail uh, what it is you guys do? Yeah, so Invail, data security company, focusing on securing data in use. So when it's being used or processed, things like searches, things like analytics, and making sure that's locked down during that entire processing life cycle. So we, we were talking a, a little bit ahead of time, and I know uh, Don was saying, wow, I've, I've never heard this kind of thing exists." so we'll, we'll definitely get into that. But I want to know kind of originally, where did where did this come about? Is this something, I, I know you have some history, uh, you know, in the public sector as well. Is this something that uh, that you kind of discovered at, at that end and then decided to, to create a company here? Or, or what's the whole story behind this? Yeah, so we developed the core of our original technology within the U.S. intelligence community, and it was born out of mission need. So we had the need to be able to perform trusted compute, so run searches, run analytics in environments that we considered to be completely untrusted. So how do you do that in a secure capacity? So it turns out that mission problem is a perfect one for a special area of encryption called homomorphic encryption. And if anybody's heard of that, uh, typically they've heard a couple of things. One, that it's often considered to be that holy grail of crypto because it allows you to perform operations in the encrypted domain, or as we would say in ciphertext space, as if it's in the unencrypted domain or the plain text world. It's that kind of math magic, holy grail aspect of it. And then the second thing that people have heard, if they've heard of anything, is that over its lifespan, which is about 30 years at this point, it's been very computationally intensive, or in other words, slow. So possible, but not practical. So when we faced mission need to be able to perform trusted compute and untrusted locations, and homomorphic encryption was the perfect way to do that. The limiting factor was there was no practical way to accomplish that at scale. So we developed breakthroughs in that specific area of encryption that allowed it to be scalable and practical. And then we're able to bring a bit of that core technology cleanly out of the intelligence community and use it as a seed to start and veil the company about two and a half years ago at this point. 
All right. So uh, I'm glad you you mentioned a few things in there. And uh, if I don't mention it, Peter's going to call me out later. So uh, <laughs> before the show, he had kind of asked me for my, my kind of thoughts on it. And I, I used a few words. Slow was definitely one of the words. Uh, but I, I think I also threw out impossible. Uh, and and let, me, let me explain uh, where, where my background is. So I've, I've, I've taken a look at homomorphic encryption before. And what I read was a lot different from what your product does. Uh, what I had seen as possible in the past was that people had found a way to take encrypted information and provide encrypted inputs and perform basic mathematic operations. And what I always saw was either addition or multiplication, and that's about it. That they could do that you know, in an encrypted form. You get your answer back. Everything's encrypted the whole way, and you've either added two numbers or multiplied two numbers. But at RSA, you gave a talk, and you described that you guys were able to do things well beyond that. Uh, and I think the example I heard was that you could you could do a search across a, a large quantity of encrypted information mm-hmm. and get results back. How, how is that so different from what I learned about? Because I mean, that that's like, that's not just a few steps. That's like light years ahead of from what I've learned. Correct. So homomorphic encryption gives you those basic primitives, those searches, or I should say those um, multiplications or those additions in ciphertext space. So things like searches or analytics are built from those primitives up. So we take those homomorphic primitives and then we build more complex and complete functionality, what you and I would call a search or what you and I would call an analytic and do that in a very scalable and performant way. So is this one of the, is that really the breakthrough that you discussed like you had or were there things where you're like, oh, we reduced the the computational requirements in order to make this available or is it really just you figured out how to mix those primitives together? Correct, and do so in a very efficient capacity. So the primitives are the primitives. So I always tell people our encryption is modular. We're very open to our customer base about it. We're very transparent. We can actually leverage any type of homomorphic encryption. So I tell folks, if somebody's out peddling peddling you proprietary crypto, don't walk away, run. So just run out of the room. So we're very open about the crypto. It's not where our breakthrough came from. It's how we use it and how we use those primitives very creatively and efficiently over the data to do that more complex functionality that achieves the scale that we're able to achieve. So when we're talking about scale and performance, I mean, it's still not easy. There is still a workload that's being done. And so with, with Inveil, where's that workload being carried out? Is that on servers or, or hardware that's at the client site? Or is that at your location? Since, since it's all encrypted, it could theoretically be anywhere. What, what's your normal deployment model? So our MO is always retain positive control of your data assets, whatever that means to you. So whatever environment that you're comfortable in, so that could be cloud, that could be on-prem, et cetera. And then we will enable secure and encrypted processing to occur over those data assets wherever they are. And so that compute is gonna be environmental compute that we will leverage. And of course, we're a software company. And I, I know that was always one of the big challenges before was you know just the, the amount of effort that it took. And so you would see a lot of solutions out there that only did like partial, uh, partial homomorphic encryption. I'm thinking like, uh, well, what I studied, which was the El-Gamal, you know, we'd use in some VPN connections and things. But in theory, this could really be used for any data set. Uh, have, you, mm-hmm. have you integrated with any existing software packages that, that you know, we'd be familiar with? Or is this mostly something people are custom building into their applications? 
No. So we're software that sits on top of whatever they currently have in their data environment. So our main architectural premise and goal with designing the software was not to ask people to change anything about the way that they store their data today, they format it, um, their encryption of it, et cetera. We simply wanted them to deploy a lightweight software app somewhere in their environment and configure it to know about certain data sources that they wanted to enable encrypted processing over. So in other words, name your storage technology and we integrate with it. Now, I was I was reading about this a little bit on the Envil website, and I, I just want to make sure I have this kind of down. You, we have, There's a client part of this application and there's a server part of application. Those two things interact. And if they do, that interaction, is that all at the data or could those be in like disparate locations? Typically, they're always in disparate locations. So the client application, as you read, uh, and we have a server application. So to back up just a little bit, um, we are two-party, just like any kind of search or analytics system on the planet. Um, the example that I most often use for more technically inclined people is something like SQL. So I can type a SQL search in all day long, but there's got to be a SQL server on the other side where the data is that can understand that string, select, you know, blah, 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 that I call the SQL search and have it process effectively over the data. We're no different. One of the first questions I get asked, why do you have to be two-party? If we were not two-party, we would be sending encrypted blobs out into the world and the world would have absolutely no idea what to do with them. So there's got to be something somewhere in the environment of that data, wherever it may be, that can understand that encrypted blob that I called an encrypted search and have it processed effectively over the data. That's the functionality of our Unveil server application that you saw on the website. Now, the second part of that two-party form factor that you just brought up was the Unveil client application. So whereas we assume that that server app is sitting out in the data environment, which is untrusted, the client app sits within the trusted walls of the enterprise. So why is that trust boundary so important? Because the client app's job is to encrypt those searches or those analytics before they ever leave those enterprise walls and then decrypt the results as they come back. So because our working premise is that the content of that search, those indicators that you're looking for, maybe PII, PHI, e-resident identifiers under GDPR, some kind of IP, et cetera, and or the result contains something sensitive to you that you need to protect, then that client app similarly needs to sit within the trusted walls of the enterprise or organization that's originating that request. So with, with that kind of solution, um, you know, where the handoff is happening between these two different pieces, what kind of latency, latency does that introduce? Is it is it a negligible thing? Because, you know, we, we were probably already doing some kind of encryption before handing off to a server and getting a response back. So is it is it measurable or is it not something we have to worry about? No, it's, it's light years beyond what it ever was before, right? So we're talking about instead of hours or days to compute these kinds of searches, it's seconds or milliseconds. So completely different kind of a scale. And does the size of the data matter? You know, or if we have megabytes of data, then it's not a truly significant amount. But if we have terabytes or petabytes of information, does that modify that time at all? Or is it all independent? It depends. So the correct technical answer is depends. It depends on <laughs> it depends on how everything has been tuned. It depends on what kinds of computations you're performing, et cetera. I think that something that's important to define and point out is that we focus only on the usage piece and we do it by choice. So in data security, there are three elements that we call the data security triad. So securing data at rest on the file system, things like file-based encryption, in database encryption, but that also includes things like access control, for example. 
example, very well understood, lots of solutions out there. And then the second element is securing data in transit when it's moving through the network, again, well understood. And then lastly, securing data in use. So what happens to that data when it's read off of the file system, out of the database, and goes to be processed by things like searches or analytics? So that's where we sit exclusively. That means that we sit above the data at rest mechanisms that people already have, and we're complementary to the existing data in transit mechanisms that they have in the environment. So because of that, we're able to achieve very, very low latencies because we are just focusing on that one piece. Now, th this is something you, know, you brought up, data sizes, and in, in a previous life, used to do a little bit of scientific computing, um, is, which actually brings up a question. Data size, but also the, you know, we brought up SQL. But are there any limitations on, like, what kind of operations or what you can send over? Because I, I dabbled a little bit in, like, out-of-core computations where you send calculations to the data, uh, but a lot of times that's actually executable code of some sort. Can your product support that, or is that something that I would have to figure out if I were going to use Envail, or, or how would that work? So it's all in the land of the possible, yes. What I typically tell people is the same principles that hold true in the unencrypted world also hold true in the encrypted domain. So while, for example, we could do any type of SQL operation, and I only describe it in terms of SQL because most people are familiar with SQL, so it's a good frame of reference, um, things like wildcarding, are ex more expensive in the SQL world. So if I look for N star or N star, L star, T star, that's more expensive than I, if I had done a direct lookup in a SQL capacity. Same thing is true in the encrypted domain. So while it's possible, it's a little bit more expensive and proportionally so. I, uh, I kind of learned the, what I call caveman security, which is anytime you deploy or you hear about a new security product, you're supposed to be scared of it. You know, we're scared of fire, we're scared of lightning. Uh, so. With your product, this is obviously very cutting edge, very new. It sounds very exciting. Uh, from a maturity side, you mentioned you know, homomorphic encryption has been been known about for a long, long time. So you've you've not necessarily invented something new. You've just invented a way to actually use it practically and effectively. But could you give us? Uh, obviously, you don't want to give away any client details, but uh, like a success story, a, a way that somebody's implemented in Veil uh, and just seen a, a great success out of it. So we see a lot of use in the cloud right now. So we do a lot of work in the cloud platform. So we deploy natively over all three major cloud platforms today. And that's probably our most requested deployment location for a variety of use cases. So think about you've got a data lake in the cloud and you have multiple parties wanting to leverage that, but they need to do so in such a way that their interactions in that cloud are each secure and private to each of them. So secure multi-tenant usage of a shared data lake, for example. So that's one of the things that we see quite often in the cloud. And then also uh, the encrypted, unencrypted types of use cases where I want to encrypt my workloads, I want to put them on the cloud environment, and then how do I process it in a way that nothing is ever decrypted during that entire processing lifecycle. So we see that come up quite a bit as well. And from the from the deployment aspect, uh, do you guys have like AWS AMIs, you know, machine images or Azure images, or do we just spin up a Linux server, throw your software on there? How does that work? So either way, um, so we do, like I said, partner with all three of the cloud providers. Um, we deploy in minutes in any of those locations. You could certainly choose us as an AMI for some of the AWS products and have it deploy out. Uh, it will live on a Linux, you know, a regular OS. Uh, most often some kind of Linux variant OS is what we see. And then from there, it just depends on the use case and how people want to deploy it. 
Okay, and, and on the application side, to interface with all this, we have a, an SDK, or is there a, a particular query language we use with it, or how does that go? So we try to make it as easy as possible to interact with from the client perspective, which is where a user or a workflow would be interacting with it. So we are, uh, for all practical purposes, functioning as a proxy layer in that environment. And the way that we integrate with the outside world, like any good proxy layer, is through standard APIs. So things like REST API. So we expose a REST API. So if people want to code to that, we'll give them our Swagger uh, files. Uh, we support full JDBC, which is a very standard. So REST is more of a protocol. JDBC is more standardized. So if you have something like a JDBC API, it's a drop-in. And then from there, our goal is to be uh, as plug-and-play as possible. So if there's a custom API that people need us to implement in order to achieve that goal, then we do it. And that doesn't take more than a couple of days, typically. We're talking with uh, Dr. Ellison Ann Williams of Unveil, and uh, I wanted to ask a little bit about your your background because uh, a lot of the people that that uh, that watch and listen to our podcast are career changers or people getting started in IT. And uh, I'm always interested when someone kind of either came out of the military or came out of the public sector, um, how well you feel that prepared you for for what it is you're doing now. And you actually have a pretty interesting background because not only um, does it look like you were at the NSA, but uh, John Hopkins University as well. Uh, prior to that. So can you talk about kind of your your road to where you are now and, and, and how that helped you get to where you are? Yeah. So I think something that's important to understand is people look at me from the outside and say, oh, she's extremely technical. She has a technical background. How did such a technical person become CEO and founder of a successful startup? Well, if you back up a little bit, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs on both sides. And so as a little girl, when I sat and thought, what do I want to be when I grow up? It was always, I want to own and run my own company. And I ended up being the first technical person in my family. So I did, I started taking the classes, math was fun. And I thought, well, I'll follow this down and see where it goes. And at the end of it, there was a PhD and okay, well, what do I do now? Right. So I was given a postdoc offer and then recruited by NSA. NSA, of course, couldn't tell me what they did, but we do cool stuff. And I thought, I want to do cool stuff. So I went in and ended up staying quite a long time there, just being given amazing opportunities to see a variety of things, to start a variety of efforts that that I feel really made a difference in the world. And so some people ask, how did your time in big bureaucratic intelligence community prepare you to run a startup? Well, first of all, I was already starting new things all the time inside of the intelligence community. So that's what I love to do. I've always done that. And then the second thing is, uh, Learning to navigate successfully a very large bureaucratic organization is really not that much different than navigating a large Fortune 100 company. And so while I thought all of those skills and understanding bureaucracy and how to work with bureaucracy wouldn't necessarily translate out, they've translated perfectly and prepared me very well for interacting with that tier of customer base that we find ourselves in. I guess one of the bigger challenges would just be adapting to a a budget that actually has limits versus one that's virtually unlimited. <laughs> so uh, now I did have a question on with Inveil, you've got, uh, uh, you know, this, this core product, right? That is, I, I, I'm not aware of you having any competition whatsoever in this space because it's unique enough. So where, where do you see that going in the future? You know, now that you, you've kind of already created this, you're, you're out there, you're starting to gain some market share. Uh, you've kind of created a whole new market. What, what is the next step for Inveil? Yeah, so we came out with homomorphic encryption breakthrough, like I said, from the intelligence community, and we built our first product line around that. 
So homomorphic encryption-based product, zero reveal search, um, that's GA now. It's NIAP common criteria, CSFC certified. Now, we have other product lines. So we're the secure data and use company, not the homomorphic encryption company, even though we have very powerful breakthroughs in that specific area of encryption, that never decrypt security posture. But there are a variety of ways to secure the usage of data. So for example, we have a whole new product line around the Intel SGX. So you move it inside a trusted execution environment, you're willing to take that risk of decrypting it in your data environment. So it's not the nation state security posture that your homomorphic encryption of never decrypt is going to be. But of course, anytime you decrypt something and compute on it, it's faster. So we have a whole product line, like I said, around the SGX. We partner with Intel on that. We were part of uh, Microsoft's confidential computing preview out in Azure, which was a, a SGX-enabled cloud platform. And then we're also developing product line that's just about hit the streets for encrypted analytics, specifically around encrypted uh, machine learning and AI. So we're very excited about that product line as well. And then I'm also curious, uh, you know, how's your product been received by the the security community out there? Because I, I, I'll admit, I, when I first heard about it, all right, you can work with data while it's encrypted. I, I was skeptical uh, because you, the, the first thing that pops into somebody's mind is, all right, if I've got an encrypted document and I want to read it, how can I read it if it stays encrypted, right? That's kind of like the, the simplistic argument about why it would be impossible. So, I mean, obviously, you guys can back it up. You're, you're actually doing what you say you're going mm -hmm. to do. So how's the community received that if you hit resistance to that? Are people generally really excited about the product? Well, you hit the nail on the head. So my uh, line to anyone is don't believe me, just try it <laughs> and prove it for yourself. And universally, it works every time. So when we came out as a company, we knew that we'd have to build a whole new market in the commercial world around securing data and use to find new terminology around that. Uh, and then we came out to the RSA Innovation Sandbox, the youngest company ever to be in the sandbox. We entered on a whim, thought at least it'll be good exposure. We ended up being one of the top 10. We thought, well, we'll get to pitch and that's great exposure. And then from there, we ended up being one of the winners. And at that point, um, the technology of homomorphic encryption, I like to say, had the big scarlet A associated with it of being relegated into this niche academic community of very interesting, but not commercially practical in any capacity. And over the last couple of years, we've seen that dramatically change from, like I said, homomorphic encryption being the scarlet A kinds of a technology to now it's buzzy. And it has all of these horizontal commercial applications associated with with it. So we came out, we built the first version of the commercial product just to give you a kind of a data point around that. We started running it out in the commercial world and the universal reaction that we encountered was twofold. So the first was, holy cow, this actually works. Because like you pointed out, what we say we do, keeping everything encrypted during processing sounds impossible. It's not, it's just math. And then the second reaction we got was, can we strategically invest in you? So this is when folks like Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters and USAA and InQtel became investors in the company. So that holy cow moment uh, never stops for us as a company because there is a high degree of skepticism about not only that it works, but how well does it work? And so I'm always proud when I hear somebody go, oh my gosh, this really works and it works well. This is pretty revolutionary. Okay, so if I if I don't want to take your word for it and I want to try it out for myself, uh, <laughs> how do I find out more information? 
So go to our website. We have a nice contact us form. You can fill it out. It'll come to us. And, and typically we get back to people within 24 hours or so. Great. And that's Envel, E-N-V-E-I-L dot com. You actually got the dot com. That's we got amazing dot com. for a startup these days. As Justin was <laughs> saying, it's, it's not an I.O. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, no. Fantastic. Do you have any uh, any conferences coming up? Any speaking things? Anything we should know about? So I think our next big conference coming up is going to be the AWS Public Sector Summit. Okay. So we're we'll going to yeah. be doing uh-huh, some exciting demos around our deployments with the AWS Snowball Edge. So trusted compute at the edge. So show up there, come to our booth, and we'll happy to show it to you. I guess down in D.C. for you because you're down in or DC over, for us. depending on where in Maryland. <laughs> down. <but>. We're <laughs> down. in Maryland. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, with us today, and I'd love to uh, maybe follow up, uh, you know, in a year or so and, and see some of the other cool stuff you guys have been working on. Sound good? Sound great. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you all for watching. But stay tuned. We've got more Technado coming up right after this. And welcome back to Technado, and thank you to Dr. Williams for that. And, and Don, uh, are you convinced now? You know, it's really cool, and, and, and Justin and I were talking briefly a few moments ago about how we kind of want to do the demo, uh, and also, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm terribly impressed by Dr. Williams. When we do a lot of these interviews, I always worry about asking technical questions or, or you know, pushing somebody further than their own knowledge, kind of an awkward moment. Uh, it's the first time that I was worried about the other way around. Like, what, <laughs> yeah. if, what if I don't have smart <laughs> enough questions? <laughs> now, now you know how I feel. What do y'all know about homomorphisms? <laughs> Are those the ones that stand upright? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I I think they're no, they're upright. You're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah, that that is how I feel in every interview. Just so you know, that, that moment of, of panic you had of what was that word you just said? Uh, yeah. I, that's that's a big word. That's when you just go, totally agree. <laughs> All right. Am I going to ask something stupid? No, that, that Probably. Was I, was, I, was, that was, I I understood the concept, and that was really interesting. Well, she to, was a great sport of it, though, and uh, you know, it, it's impressive technology, and it's really cool for somebody to say, "Look, don't take our word for it. We'll prove it to you." So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to check out the demo and. See, see yeah, I, I kind of want to smoke, like just throw a bunch of weird stuff at it. Like, okay, well, have I found limitations? Is this something that they accounted for? Um, or can I not find anything? Maybe I'm just impressed and I'm like, I'll buy it. I don't have a use for it, but the worst, <laughs> take my money. Use. Like, sir, that was, it was all user error. You, <laughs> oh, you broke oh, the system. Yeah. You could put your MHTs in there. I could. Ooh. I could. Yeah, I that, way, that way, when it when it attacks me, it's still encrypted while yeah. it's attacking me. It's much secure. <laughs> an encrypted attack. attack. How do you stop an encrypted <laughs> attack? Yeah. I don't even. The computer is self-aware. Oh, man, that's crazy. Hey, uh, that's pretty much it for it today, for us today. And uh, Don and I are going to reconsider uh, if we're keeping Justin around uh, after <laughs> the this. The already been taken. Yeah, the <laughs> taken. But we do want to let you know about a few things. Uh, first of all, we've got something that we've talked about for a long time. Um, Don and I were saying, man, after some of these interviews, machine learning and virtual AI and and crypto, you know, artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah just... we, we've talked about playing some buzzword bingo, and well, the the time has come finally. And actually, Don, I don't know if you want to bring. Oh yeah, you've got your sheet okay, there. Just hold mine. Uh, up. We have made our buzzword <laughs> bingo cards, and basically the way it will work. Uh, so moving forward, if you want to play along at home with us. Uh, you're going to want to head over to, and Don, if you want to bring this up, go.itpro.tv. Now I'm on the spot. i got to browse. Yeah. Go.itpro.tv slash buzzword dash bingo. 
Buzzword-Bingo. I'm feverishly typing here. And there if, we go. If you head over to that website, you will see the bingo card there that you can download. You can print it out. You can fill it out. with. So basically, you choose the words that you want to put in so you can make your own bingo card for that week based on who, who we're interviewing and, and, uh, and what we're talking about and what you think happened uh, during that week. And, and just play along at home. You know, there, there's no prizes or anything we're just having fun, but uh, we'd love it if you'd take some pictures, share it with us. And, yeah, there's a question in the back. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. have to raise your hand yeah, on no, the technado. I just, I just, uh, Go hey, ahead. Hey, uh, well, this may be a question. I, anytime I play a game, I go, how can I bend the rules in my favor? Should I just go all or nothing and just put the same word for all 24 spaces? Because then I get blackout, and I'm pretty sure that's like double payout. Fill 24 squares above with any of these words. It doesn't say that I can't Ooh, use duplicates. You mentioned. Yeah, I'll have to. Uh, I'm going I'm to update <laughs> the wording there once each, Justin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but put, put yeah, the center center space is free, and it's play longer and have some fun. And uh, and I'm going to try to get Don to say uh, uh, cryptocurrency as a service every week. And then I'll get two squares in one. That would yeah. knock out a couple hands. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. All right, so check that out over at go.itpro.tv slash buzzword-bingo. Uh, while you're over at go.itpro.tv, go ahead and try slash technado as well, and you can find out uh, about uh, more about IT Pro TV and going ahead and setting up a free trial. Uh, you can get seven days free uh, and 30% off when you use code TECHNADO30 at checkout. Uh, there's also some information about business plans there. You can request a demo, see the Teams feature, and all of that good stuff over at go.itpro.tv slash TECHNADO. And last but not least, I want to let you know about some fun webinars coming up uh, over at itpro.tv slash webinars. Uh, next up on April 25th, that's a Thursday, at uh, 2 Eastern U.S., uh, 10 Tips for Leading Effective IT Teams. That's going to be Joe Peacock, uh, our resident uh, ITIL and, and service management expert, uh, is going to be hosting that one for you. Uh, and then we have a really cool one coming up on Thursday, May 9th, also at 2 p.m. Eastern. What does hacking look like? So watch a live network attack from both sides. And that will be Daniel Lowry trying to break into Don's system, and I'm sure Don... Uh, We'll make it easy or maybe put some honeypots there and, and mess with them. But we'll be able to see uh, what's cool is from a practical practical perspective is you can kind of see what you would see if an attack was happening to your network and how to identify that and, and address that right away rather than just be like, oh, wow, we're getting a lot of traffic on the website right now. We must be pretty cool. So uh, that one is on May 9th. And then uh, we've got ITO4 Foundation Test Prep after that. Um, and all of the past webinars we've done are still there in the archives. You can check all of those uh, great things out, even the one Justin did uh, about uh, the top five tips to win with AWS. Even that one yep. uh, is hosted at IGProductivity. I'm, I'm just as surprised webinars. as you are. Yeah. yeah. But but it is there. I just saw it on your screen. It is. It was uh, right there. I had to scroll <laughs> way down. Yeah, it was way down there. But uh, I'm hoping the hacking one is not, you're just not going to bring up that uh, like matrix code like website <laughs> that just shows things where you rake your hands across the oh, keyboard. Oh, yeah. The, what is uh, it? Hacker is it type? Hacker type. Oh, hacker, hacker type. Yeah. Yeah. Hacker type. Yeah, where you just rake your hands across it or or... Should I join in and help Daniel so we can share a keyboard so I can hack Ooh. one side and he can Is that hack pair the other? programming? I hear you can, you can hack twice as fast if you have two people using the same keyboard. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. What is that? NCIS, I think, does that? I think so. I think but so. I, I prefer the Sandra Bullock way where it's all visual where you're like, oh, I can't find the files. It's, it's behind that box. All right. 
So, yeah, that's going to be fun. We'll mm-hmm. see what hacking actually looks like. <laughs> and it is not any of those things. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you again to Dr. Williams for joining us today. And thank you all for joining us on TechNATO. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>